As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Hello and welcome to Unbelievable, the show that aims to get Christians and non-Christians thinking about the topics that really matter to all of us. Before we hear from today's guest, just a quick reminder to visit premierunbelievable.com for more shows, articles and resources. And if you register or sign up for our newsletter there, you will automatically be entered into our competition to win a free book. If you enjoy listening to Unbelievable, please do consider rating and reviewing it on your podcast platform. Today we are talking about another important topic and we would love to hear your thoughts on this so do get in touch by emailing unbelievable at premier.org.uk. But for now, let's jump in on today's discussion. Hello and welcome to Unbelievable, the show that brings Christians and non-Christians together for honest dialogue on the topics that matter most to all of us. Today we are set for a fascinating discussion spanning politics, morality and faith and our guests are actually good friends who have been learning from each other despite their disagreements through extended conversations that have at times begun with breakfast and extended through lunch. My first guest is Peter Weiner, senior fellow at the Trinity Forum, a contributing opinion writer for the New York Times, a contributing editor for The Atlantic, and the author of several books. Peter served in three American presidential administrations, including as deputy director of speech writing and as director of the Office of Strategic Initiatives. President George W. Bush called Peter part of the soul of his administration. Joining Peter on the show is his friend, Jonathan Rausch, who is a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution in Washington, uh, a contributing writer for The Atlantic, a recipient of the 2005 National Magazine Award. Jonathan is the author of eight books and many articles on public policy, culture, and government. Peter and John, welcome to the show. Very honored to have you with us. Great to be with you. I've enjoyed digging into both of your work over the last few weeks. But Jonathan, I've recently come across your book, The Happiness Curve, Why Life Gets Better After 50, which was particularly of interest to me as someone in my 40s. I've jumped that right up to the top of the the reading list. (laughs) Very good. You both were very generous in sharing with me some of your correspondence. Some of your conversation has been in person and some over email. And Pete, at one point you referred to your friendship with John as an unlikely friendship. How so? Maybe you can start by giving us a bit of a history of the friendship. Sure. I know John is is one of my closest friends now and it's a great gift to me. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> I thought you liked me. <laughs> Disagreeing already. <laughs> exactly. This is it's it gets uglier, Vince. Um my memory of when the friendship began was just around the mid-19 that I was working for William Bennett at the time, who had been Secretary of Education under Ronald Reagan and served also in the George H.W. Bush administration. And John had just written a book called Demosclerosis, which was later renamed. And to what, John? What was the renamed version? <laughs> It turns out if they can't pronounce it, they won't buy it. So it was renamed to <laughs> Government's End, Why Washington Stopped Working, available at fine bookstores everywhere. There, there you go. Well, I knew him when it was demosclerosis. And Bill and I had read the book, was very interested in the arguments that John made. Uh, I'm very impressed with how he made them. And so we had lunch at, I believe, the Mayflower Hotel. And uh, we covered the book and covered other topics beyond the book. So that was the first time that I, that I had a memory of, of meeting John. And then we stayed in touch. I, I always admired him as a writer. He, he was writing at that time, at least among other publications, at National Journal. He wrote, I think, every other week, along with a guy named Stuart Taylor. And I thought John was a model writer and thinker, very thoughtful, empirical, um, I always thought that his tone was impressive and he was an elegant and is an elegant writer. So I stayed in touch with him that way. And then when I was in the Bush administration, we would sometimes see each other and also exchange emails, including when he disagreed with some of the things that, that we in the Bush administration uh, did. Um, so I, we stayed in touch and then I left the administration in, in 2007. And we just seem to connect more. And really, I would say in the last sort of six, seven years, maybe even more than that, um, email quite a bit. And then we, we develop friendships. Um, he and I and actually another pastor, Chris Davis, would, would meet for, for, for breakfast periodically until COVID hit. And then we um, really was John, I guess, I guess three of us started together, but John is really the, the convener of, of a Thursday group, which now includes Christians and non-Christians and writers and rabbis um, and, um, and all, all sorts of people from different areas. So um, we've, we've been together. I said it was an unlikely friendship just because we came from, from from different worlds, including obviously different faith worlds. I'm a person of the Christian faith, and 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 he's um, he's an atheist. He can talk about um, about his own journey um, there. Um, so um, it's as I said, it's been a really enriching friendship and one that I really treasure. Wow, well, I, well, I love that you both have learned from each other in these ways and developed this friendship despite a significant you know disagreements. And there's probably a lot of people listening who are thinking boy, we need more of that in the world. And I wish I could have a friendship like that. And I wish I could have conversations like that. Maybe I'll put it uh, to you, John, as a convener of this Thursday group. Uh, what's the secret sauce? <laughs> you know, what, what allows for that sort of mutually edifying uh, discussion and friendship between people who have significant differences? Well, I'm tempted to say, choose your friends well. And uh, Pete is a person of intellectual integrity and personal humility. He is someone who I think lives the creeds that he articulates and 
when I encounter people like that, and every so often I do, he's not the only one. I, I just try to plant myself with them and cling to them, sometimes probably annoyingly. Um, it's very helpful, I find, to, to try to listen more and talk less. That can often be the, the basis for, for better conversations and, and better relationships. So that's helped. Um, and it's helped that Pete and I are very curious. We have that in common. We, we always just want to know stuff. And since childhood, really, I've been aware that, that religious faith is inaccessible to me. I'm Jewish culturally. Um, I'm a Jew. There's no question about that. But I'm a Jew who doesn't believe in God and never could, even though I tried. So although I've been through phases when I was younger being contemptuous toward religion and Christianity, I, I'm not, not that anymore, partly thanks to Pete. I've always been curious about how people could believe this weird stuff. And Pete has probably done more than anyone else because he's curious in the opposite direction to help me understand that. And that's interesting, John, that you said, uh, though you tried, could, could you open that up just a, a little bit more? Yeah, I was... I was born in 1960, and there weren't a lot of people around who were openly atheistic. I mean, this was an age when people introduced themselves not by saying, so where do you work? Uh, or what's your profession? They'd say, where do you go to church? And I didn't have that, and part of me thought I should. I was also gay, and part of me thought I should be straight. So I was an outlier in these respects, and I went to religious summer camp every summer, and one summer just before high school, I really tried. I, I donned to fill in morning and night and said the prayers and thought, well, maybe this will maybe this will push me across that barrier and, and then I can be more like everyone else. But it, it didn't work. And after that, I, I never tried again. Thanks for sharing. I'm very interested in both of your thoughts about politics. Very curious and how politics has intersected with uh, your thoughts about faith. John, in 2003, you wrote an article in The Atlantic that lauded apathy, or what you called apathyism, basically not caring very much one way or another about religion. Uh, you claimed that apathyism was nothing less than a major civilizational advance. And then I, I came across the fact that 20 years later, you now call that article the dumbest article you ever wrote, <laughs> which yes, I found and there's so competition. <laughs> <laughs> and there's competition. And I found that so refreshing because at least in my experience, once someone publishes something, they're just going to defend those views to the death no matter what. There's no changing their mind once it's in print. So I, I really respect that. And I found that really refreshing. Why do you think that was now a dumb article? So I'll try to be wrong more often. <laughs> I'll try to be wrong more often, win even more of your respect. That's excellent. Well, I was... We were coming out of the 90s. This was the epoch of triumphalism, a liberal democracy reigned supreme. The ideological opponents of same had, had all but vanished. And it looked like America was on track to become a secular nation in the mold of Europe. And I thought that was just peachy because religion is a great divider. It is a probably history's greatest source of, of intellectual, moral, and physical conflict. So I thought, good, well, people are just caring less about it. They're becoming nuns, N-O-N-E-S. Um, it's not that they're hostile to religion. It's not that they're angry about it. It's just that, that they're all toning it down. They're becoming ap apatheists. 
So we'll all be like Sweden or something. We'll go on our merry way. What I didn't understand at that point, I guess other people didn't, but I know I didn't, was that people have core spiritual needs. They need meaning in life. They need a profound sense of community. They need to be tethered to something larger than themselves. They need to believe there's a source of values. And it turns out that when they drift away from the great faith traditions that have provided those moorings, they substitute things that don't work, like soul cycle or Wicca um, or objectivism or QAnon. But then even worse, they substitute partisan politics. And that turns out to make the country ungovernable because none of these things can provide the moral substrate that helps us to govern ourselves. I shouldn't have been surprised the founders warned us about this again and again. They said, liberal democracy is great, but it's not all you need. You need these other supports. Um, and But I miss that. And I think a lot of people miss that. Mm -hmm. Pete, is this really a point of agreement between you and John, or, or is there any difference of perspective here? No, that's. I think that's largely a point of of, of agreement. I, I think probably to the extent that that my views have shifted, I've become somewhat more aware about the intersection of faith and politics, because I think that what we have now is um, in the United States, at least is a kind of freak show, moral freak show that's happened because of the conjunction of, of, of faith and politics. I should say that in my own history of the Christian faith, and that began at the end of high school and, and was a relatively long journey and not an easy journey, but in any event, one of the very early um, intuitions I had, maybe it's an insight, was the danger of conflating faith and politics. In fact, the first Thing that was ever published in my name was in my hometown newspaper, the Tri-City Herald. And it was in response to a person, his last name was, was Mays, and he had written something in the Tri-City Herald arguing that um, it just happened that the Christian faith and the Reagan agenda were perfectly coincident. Um, and so he was talking about how the Bible uh, made the case um, against the Equal Rights Amendment, actually, for people who are of a certain age, they'll remember that that was a big issue in the United States in the 1970s. Defense buildup, anti-communism, Second Amendment. And even though I was relatively young in my faith, I had a sense that this was not right, that the conflation of faith and politics um, could hurt both if it wasn't done very carefully. And I never had the view that the Bible, you could make these sort of easy connect the dots uh, um, or you could connect the dots from, from, from faith to public policy. Now, I, I think you can make arguments where you, where, where you say when you, when you weigh the scales of justice, they, they lean more in one direction than the other. And, and the Bible cares about and Christians should care about justice. But that's very different than what I was seeing. And so I, I wrote him and I remember the last sentence in, in my piece was it, it, to, to, to Mays was that Jesus Christ lived and died for all people, Republicans, independents, and maybe even a few Democrats. And that was, that was my way of, of, of trying to say to, to, to back off. So I, that's, that's been my starting point. Um, but what I've seen in the last, particularly the last eight years, um, and, and the way that the American evangelical and fundamentalist world have rallied around um, Donald Trump 
and the MAGA movement um, has has deepened my my concerns. And I would say right now in this country, net net, the role of faith in politics is is more negative than it is positive. Mm. And John, this is where I found your thesis so so interesting. There not being this one to one correlation, but a nuanced view where. Christianity actually needs secular liberal, liberalism to thrive, and and vice versa. And this is connected to uh, what you call your four M's thesis. It's a really nice framework structure through which to think about this relationship between the two. You call it an odd couple, but but they actually need to rely on one another. Can you open that up for us a bit? Yeah. Well, that could this could become a large and long conversation. So, you want the bumper sticker version? <laughs> we'll start you, there and see where, we, see full, where we wind up. You want the full C.S. Lewis. Uh, <laughs> well, so something that I came to think over time is that there are really four big questions that humans need to feel they've got some kind of answer to individually and culturally. Um, I call them the four M's. And it turns out that the problem is that there are two of them that really only religion can answer. And there are two of them really that, that only non-religion, secular, secular science and materialism can answer. But people want answers to all four. So what they are is morality, mortality, uh, murder, and, and magic or miracles. So, so what do I mean by that? Well, Fundamentally, we fear death, and it is a horrible thing to imagine that when we die, we, we simply cease to exist altogether. I don't mind that, but many, many people do. The vast majority of humanity want to tell a story about meaning in life beyond just our corporeal existence. You can't get that from science, but you can get it from all the major religions. The second is morality. What is the foundation for believing in right and wrong? Why not just lie, cheat, steal, and kill if you can get away with it? Plato asked that question. It's the starting question of the Republic. He didn't really have a very good answer. But if you believe in God and in the Bible, you, you do have an answer. You've got a source for your moral values. Uh, I don't believe those things, and I have moral values. But again, I'm a, I'm a peculiar bird. So on the <laughs> religious side, you need those things. But on the other hand, You've also got the problem of what I think of as what I call murder, I, I shorthand, but that's really the problem of suffering and evil. Why would a good God create an evil like smallpox to torture and kill millions and millions of children? Why would a, a good God allow the tsunami that takes uh, millions of, of innocent lives? But beyond that, why would a good God allow murder? Why design humans to make it just so extremely easy to demolish each other? Uh, free will doesn't answer that question because it's fine for me to have free will, but why should I have the ability to snuff out your free will? Um, religion can't answer that question. Tim Keller, who I talked to about it, late Tim Keller, great pastor, was blunt about this. And he said, well, everything I can think of gets you three quarters of the way, maybe, to explaining this problem, but, but I can't get you the whole way. And then the last one is the problem of magic or miracles, which is once you start believing that anything can happen, a person who's dead can come back to life and somehow the atoms and molecules reassemble themselves and, and all the laws of thermodynamics run backward, then you can believe anything. 
And there's no way to have a coherent worldview with intellectual progress in a direction. You need science for that. So that's fun. I'm sorry about the long answer. It's complicated stuff. But but the point is that, that even in principle, it's it's not just the relationship between uh, secular liberalism and, and religion is convenient and helpful. It's that they fundamentally are both necessary to answer these questions, which means that they've got to learn to get along. That's really helpful. I find it a really helpful framework and almost this division of labor. And there's a real charity to it. It's sort of like, look, your religious perspective can provide two of the foundations necessary for democracy, but actually you need non-religious people and approaches, scientific approaches as well for the other two foundations. Sounds quite fair and good. Pete, can you reflect back on this? Is it a proposal that you're happy with? Is it something that you think differently about? Yeah, the first thing I would say is just in hearing John lay, lay that out, um, and, and he I've talked about it before, I think it underscores one of the attributes of, of John that I admire and, and, and um, the, the, the virtues that he has, um, and, and he has both intellectual and, and, and personal ones. But that capacity to be able to, I would say, be disinterested in key questions um, and to look fairly or as fairly as human beings can, can look. None of us obviously see things from a perfectly detached place from a distance. But that, that is one of the things that I noticed early on about, about, about John and what I admired. So too often, I, I would say in my discussions, both with Christians and with non-Christians, once folks settle in on a position, they become like defense attorneys. Um, they think that all of the arguments are uh, on their side. None of the arguments are on the other side. And even if they actually felt that the other side had a legitimate argument, they wouldn't want to concede it because they think that debate is for victory rather than debate being for truth, which is a phrase that Owen Barfield used um, in the context of his discussions and dialogues and debates with C.S. Lewis. So that's the first thing that I that I want to uh, I want to say, yeah. In terms of those four areas that that, that John mentions, um, I mean, two of them we we agree with, which is morality and mortality. Um, I don't think it's impossible to to get from the the is to the ought if you're not a believer in God, but I think it's a lot easier, and, and I think historically it's it's been a grounds for objective truth and objective morality. So I think that that's right. I mean, religion has been a grounds for that. Yeah, religion has been a grounds for 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 morality. For so the idea that 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 morality is just evolutionary based um, and and culture based. It's it's, it's um, I just don't think it's as, it's as solid. Um, and in terms of mortality, for, for for sure. I mean, from the Christian perspective, there's there's life after life, and there's and there's hope. There's a, in, in, in the words of, uh, of John in Revelation, a place of no more tears, no more sorrow, no more pain. And it's an unfolding story that doesn't end. Um, and that's appealing. Now, whether it's true or not is a different question, but, but I happen to believe it is. Um, but I think it is an advantage. And I think it also helps um, people that I've known in, in my life who have suffered, suffered enormously, I think that they've been able to get through the suffering and the pain with more equanimity um, because of their their faith. Tim Keller was one of one of them. Tim was a close friend of mine, and as John said, he was a good friend of 
uh, of Tim's as, as, as well. On the issue of suffering, what he, what he refers to as murder, yeah, um, I have long believed, um, struggled with that question. I've read a lot of Christian apologetics to try and explain how a good God allows suffering, especially suffering of the innocent. And I've just never felt like there's a convincing explanation for it. Um, I just read recently in a book club that I'm in um, the um, several chapters from the Brothers Karamazov, the Rebellion, the Grand Inquisitor, and the Russian Monk. And of course, the Grand Inquisitor and, and the lead up to that, the, the Rebellion chapter, really is focused in on that Ivan, the agnostic atheist brother, making the case against Alyosha, who's, who's the quiet believer. And it's a searing indictment against God. And the interesting thing is that Dostoevsky didn't attempt to intellectually answer the question. Um, the, 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 I wrote a piece recently on it, and I said that the answer was a kiss with both Jesus and Alyosha in, in the story. It was incarnational love is the best response to it. But I admired Dostoevsky because I didn't feel like he was taking a shortcut, an intellectual shortcut. And trying to present arguments that I that that um, just in in my estimation couldn't be couldn't be sustained. The issue of the miracles, I think, probably John and I have 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 a bit of a difference on that. I I would certainly concede the potential problems of if you open up the 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 chance for miracles to to um, to occur that 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 natural laws would would um, would, would be circumvented. Um, in, in certain cases. And we've had people who have claimed miracles where they clearly don't exist. Um, I don't think by definition, it, 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 because it creates complications and problems doesn't mean it's wrong uh, or it can't happen. It simply means that if it's the case, it, it sort of complicates your, your life. I'd say it's, there's a rough analogy in Christian hermeneutics, right? Which is if you um, believe Jesus and you revere the Bible, but you believe that the Bible could have contradictions or errors in it. I understand why people would say no, because it keeps it neat and tidy. And if you open up the chance that there may be errors or contradictions, then the question becomes, well, what's true and what's not? I appreciate the way both you and John are, are willing to accept complexities and complications in your worldview. We'll continue talking about that. We're going to take a quick break now. To all of you listening, please share your thoughts and feedback. Email us at unbelievable at premier.org.uk or connect on social media at unbelievable FE on X or at facebook.com backslash premier unbelievable. Check out Jonathan Rausch's website, www.jonathanrausch.com. So much more to talk about. You're listening to Premier Unbelievable with me, Vince Vitale, alongside my insightful guests, Pete Weiner and Jonathan Rausch. We'll be back in just a moment. Before we rejoin the rest of today's podcast, I've got a very special offer for you to help you have an even more meaningful spiritual experience this Easter. As you know, N.T. Wright is without doubt one of the greatest Christian thinkers and apologists of our time. And some of Tom's answers to questions about Jesus' death, resurrection and return are some of the most poignant and thought-provoking. That's why we've created a brand new downloadable devotional resource that's perfect for the Easter season featuring these questions and Tom's answers. This five-day devotional journey titled Jesus' Death, Resurrection and Return is only available to friends like you as our thanks for your gift today. 
And remember, your support is truly critical to help keep resources and podcasts like Ask Andy Write Anything and Unbelievable going strong, because this ministry is completely funded by friends like you. So please give the very best gift you can today and make sure to download your copy of Jesus' Death, Resurrection and Return devotional at premierinsight.org forward slash unbelievable show. That's premierinsight.org forward slash unbelievable show. Thank you. Welcome back to part two of this episode of Premier Unbelievable, where we're hearing wonderful insights from a wonderful friendship between two celebrated writers and leaders, Pete Weiner and Jonathan Rausch. Uh, Pete, you were talking about miracles. It's the fourth M in this very helpful framework of John's. Maybe just pick up there and tell us a bit why you don't fully accept John's view that once you allow for miracles, you actually undermine regularity and inquiry. Yeah, I do think you undermine regularity. I just don't think that's an argument that it can't necessarily be true. If naturalism is is the argument that supernatural explanations are excluded or discounted, and if that's the whole show, then of course miracles are by definition not not possible. But if you believe that God exists and there are things beyond naturalism, then obviously God, I think it's obvious that God could intervene and could interrupt the, the routines of natural uh, law. But I would concede that if if you believe that's the case, then the question is, when does that happen and when does not? As a person of the Christian faith, obviously, I would have to believe in that, at least as a relatively orthodox Christian, when it comes to the resurrection of, of Jesus and, and, and some other things. So I, I think it's just, it just depends on what your starting point is. I think John is very much in the David Hume school on this question. C.S. Lewis wrote a book called Miracles, which responded to Hume. And both were extremely intelligent men, and they had different presuppositions. And I thought that they engaged the arguments in a relatively good way, and people of, of honesty and intellectual integrity can come down on different sides of that. Yeah, it's interesting. I can I can see the arguments in both directions. You admit miracles into the system, and and now is it the case that you can just give any explanation you want for anything? On the other hand, sometimes I've wondered, and many people have wondered, at the regularity uh, of the universe. And if you don't have God as part of the equation, is there an explanation for why the universe is so regular and one that we can inquire about and and come to to knowledge about? So yeah, you have arguments in both directions on that. John, one thing that I'm really enjoying as I dig into your work is that you always say things I don't expect you to say. <laughs> for, for, for example, from your perspective as an atheist, you said, I don't think I'd like to live in a society where most people believed as I do, which is not something you hear often. Usually people think this is what I believe, and I think everyone else should believe that. And if they don't believe that, then they're at fault. But you showed this sort of charity that you're not actually sure you'd want everyone to believe as you believe. Can you explain that to us? <laughs> well, part of it's, I suppose that I'm a journalist by training and temperament, and life is only interesting because of variety, because of the, the endless curiosity and spectacle of the human species and the constant surprises that it springs. So there's that. But there's also the fact that I won the intersectionality trifecta uh, from a young age. I knew I was different in ways that turned out to be atheistic, homosexual, and Jewish. Arguably, the three most universally reviled isms in all of human history. 
And I came to feel that, that although a burden in many, many ways, especially the homosexual part for a young, young man in, in um, the 1970s and into the 80s, although there's certainly burdens with that, there are also great benefits to being a minority, to have that, that unique viewpoint, uh, that sense of a niche in life that you don't necessarily get if you just blend into the crowd and you think like everyone else and you've never had to challenge your own assumptions or, or other people's assumptions. So, so to me, that's, that's one of the great spices of life. I wouldn't want it to be different, really. And is there any, is there any tension there between, on the one hand, valuing truth, right? One of your books, The Constitution of Knowledge, A Defense of Truth, but then also seeing value in people believing things that are other than what you believe to be true. Do you see the sort of potential tension there? And I was even thinking about it in terms of your friendship, like your friendship with Pete. It seems like you really value the fact that he thinks differently. And But presumably you're also giving arguments that you would like him to be persuaded of, of your own belief. Help me resolve that tension, I guess. Well, so Pete and I, and hopefully you and a lot of people need to agree generally on what the rules are going to be for settling our disagreements about facts, about reality, on issues that really directly involve the public wheel. Something like who won the 2020 election? We have to have a mechanism for resolving that disagreement. And that's what the constitution of knowledge does. And that's what science does broadly defined, but also including things like journalism and courts of law. They, they create a process that we all agree to that work our way toward common understandings of facts. And that's very important. But the raw material for that process is disagreement. In a room where everyone agrees about everything, no learning will take place because incorrect assumptions won't get challenged. And that happens all the time nowadays in academia, for example, in disciplines and departments where everyone is on the left. They make mistakes because they're not hearing other points of view. So the trick is you need to have a world with plenty of healthy viewpoint difference, lots of diversity of, of opinion and disagreement. And then you need a system that pits the biases against biases and the points of view against each other in a structured way to produce over time a better sense of reality. And, and that, Mirabile Dictu, is, is what we got. We call it the constitution of knowledge. And, and is there any conflict in the idea that if you say you play out it out over time, we have this framework for the constitution of, of knowledge and say that you're right, that atheism is true, and that through these agreed upon means of inquiry, everyone comes to the belief, the true belief, hypothetically, that atheism is true. But then on your own political philosophy, that actually winds up being bad for society because of the role religion plays in the foundations of healthy society, at least in America and some other democracies. So is there any tension there between your, your view on truth and then your, your view of the good society and political philosophy? Well, of course, there's always tension between the advance of knowledge, which always upsets apple carts and historically important assumptions. Usually for the better over time, a lot of really terrible false things were said and thought about homosexual people. We seduce children, we undermine the country were psychologically ill. A lot of gay people were given treatments like lobotomies and electroshock. 
on the basis of those falsehoods. So over time, it's really always better to move knowledge in a positive direction toward a firmer grasp of reality. But that said, this process doesn't apply to all of life. It applies to the parts of life where we are in the professional business of, of developing objective knowledge. So it applies in the lab and in the courtroom and in government administrative agencies. Um, it does not apply in church. It does not apply at the dining room table. Those are the places where, as William James argued brilliantly in an essay that, that just so deeply shaped me, it's called The Will to Believe. As he argued, there, there are a lot of places that are not disputes about fact. They're about higher questions, like why are we here? What's the meaning of life? Pete's notion of God is not something I think I could disprove. I say it's methodologically wrong because it, it admits into the universe an agent of complete chaos and randomness. But that's not about disproving it. And in his personal life and in his community, these, these beliefs are anchors for him in a very positive way. So I don't feel entitled to barge in there with my constitution of knowledge and break up a church service and say, well, science doesn't support any of this because constitution of knowledge doesn't operate in that realm. Helpful distinction. Pete, love to hear your thoughts on that and whether there's a, is there any asymmetry here where John values your beliefs as a Christian isn't trying to change those, perhaps that's different in the way that you approach John's beliefs? Yeah, no, it was it was interesting and uh, to hear John uh, dilate on the, on on that and uh, and, and enlightening um, to uh, to me. I don't think that there is a there is a significant um, difference. I should probably back up and say that in my journey to faith, the thing that was primus inter Paris in my in that pilgrimage was truth, or at least as I understood it. I, I know enough about human psychology to know that there are a lot of factors that can play into why people embrace faith. But consciously, the way that I remember processing it is I wanted to know whether it was true or not. Was a person of Jesus who he claimed to be or not? The resurrection, that was what I happened to <clears throat> focus in on at a relatively early stage of that journey. Did that happen? Because I, I wasn't interested in faith from a utilitarian perspective. One is I didn't feel a particular void in my life that I thought faith would, would fill. Secondly, even if it did, I thought it would be a little bit pathetic to embrace a lie or, or falsehood because it gave me comfort in, in, in some way. That's just the way I was, I was hard hardwired. The truth of the faith was important to me. And I came... Uh, over a period of time to believe that Christianity was true and Jesus is who Christians claim him to to be. But I, in terms of the, the public witness of that or trying to change people's minds, the way that I approach it, and I think I have pretty much my entire life, is I'm simply trying to bear witness to what faith is to me and how I understand it. And I do it in my writings. I'm very public in my writings about faith and not just faith in politics, but in Christ Christianity and the person of, of Jesus. I hope my, my life bears witness to, to, my, to my faith and that it aligns with it. That's, that's all I can do. I'm not doing it to try and convince anybody. I'm just trying to live the faith as authentically and as faithfully as I can. And what others make of that is what others make of it. And I, I think 
back to the friendship with John and, and myself, I mean, we've both really, I think, learned from each other. I don't think that, the, that we revealed worlds that we weren't aware of, but I think we, we became more understanding of different worlds. And, and he certainly helped me understand the Christian world from, 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 from the, from the out, outside. And the other thing, I, I just want to come back to this, which is I feel like in the friendship, and these are important to have in friendships, but, and, I, and I do have this with John, which is t- to feel like it's, it's an authentic person and conversation that you're having and that, that this is not arguments for ag- argument's sake, or you're dealing with someone with, with motivated reasoning in the extreme or or biases, confirmation bias, and so forth. And I think if you can have that in a in a conversation, whether it's faith related or, or politics related or other related, that is that's that's a blessing because you're able to to see things that you wouldn't otherwise see. And I'm just a big advocate of that. And that I mentioned earlier, C.S. Lewis and Owen Barfield, and they had deep disagreements. Uh, Lewis arrived in surprised by joy how he and Barfield would go at it hammer and tong late into the night, sort of feeling the the power of the other's blows. But the interesting thing and the important thing was that they both treasured their relationship precisely because they saw things differently. And they felt like they were better. Each of them was better for having the other person in their life, including in the areas that they that they didn't agree in. And as I mentioned earlier, Barfield said, when Lewis and I debated, we didn't debate for victory, we debated for truth. And that's an entirely different way and approach to go into conversations. Because what it means, among other things, is you're not going to continue to hold to your views or your presuppositions if somebody makes a point and helps you see that they may be wrong. So that's that's something that I find an encouragement, something to strive for. No, that's great. If someone's listening right now and they're attracted to the vision of both friendship, but also engagement in civic life that you're both putting forward, John in particular, this idea of of the significance, even if you're not religious, of religious values at the foundation of democracy and, and political system. Could you talk a little bit about like what's the practical payoff? How might life look differently? How might the way someone thinks or their decisions look differently if they're not a journalist, if they're not a politician? Just someone who's listening to the show right now, John, they're attracted to what you're saying, they're finding truth in it. What might that look like in terms of the practical payoff and the way that they engage in society and politically? Well, let's let's go straight to the best tip I can offer, which comes out of my work with a group called Braver Angels, which is a national grassroots depolarizing movement. I was an original board member. I'm now I'm, I'm just a believer and evangelist. But what I'm, also, what I'm about to tell you is also well supported by actual science, as well as the experience with Braver Angels, which is in order to start a good conversation with someone, a, a and especially someone with whom you you strongly disagree. Don't start with, here's my point of view. And don't start with a bunch of facts. Start with the question, what in your life experience led you to this opinion? Now, that's a good question for a couple of reasons. The first is that it shows genuine curiosity about the other person, which establishes a connection. 
that's what we journalists do professionally. But it works for everybody. Just as my, my very first editor at the newspaper in North Carolina, where I started 40 years ago, used to tell me, everyone has a story and it's your job to find it. So there's that. But there's also, secondly, that we're narrative creatures. We really don't exist as compendia of facts. And asking the question that I posed moves the conversation away from contention over facts to tell me a story. And once we're in storytelling land, it's much easier to develop an organically flowing conversation. So that's my best tip. And then let things unfold from there. Excellent. Pete, Pete what might you say to the same question? Well, I, it, John articulated my, my, uh, the point I would make very well. In my experience, you, you have to prioritize the relationship, relationship over, over political points of view. Number one, I just think that's, as a general matter, the right way to, to approach life, to approach other individuals. But also in my experience, when I've dealt with people who have very different views than I do, and, and, and in my case, though I was a lifelong Republican, I broke early and hard with the Republican Party over, over Donald Trump back in, in 20, 2015. And so I, there are a lot of people that I know, the wor world that I was a part of, friendships that I had, where that was a strain because people hold those views very intensely. I have my views on these and they're deeply held. And that can create strains on relationships. And some relationships I've had have been strained. I've tried hard to keep them. And I've also tr tried hard, and this is not for utilitarian reasons in terms of trying to convince them to change. I think as a general matter, I'm just curious about people's lives and want to know about those journeys and those stories that John was describing. But one of the effects of that is when I've been in conversations with people who have views different than me, and this is true of politics, and it's also true of, in, the, in the realm of faith, is if they feel like that there is, there is an intimacy, an authenticity, a vulnerability to the relationship, then the guards, the walls go down and people can begin to share things that they wouldn't otherwise share. So the mindset's just very different. And if, if you go at it, as John was describing, with, with just the facts or go through here the 10 reasons that you're wrong, and that's what you lead with, or that's what defines the relationship. It's not, a, it's not going to convince them. B, it's just going to lead to, to strained relationships. And it's either going to break the relationship or it's going to require some, some repair. That doesn't mean, by the way, that in those relationships, you can't at certain times make the case because I believe and John believes in persuasion. We believe in, in truth. We feel like that people need to be able to make those cases. But it has to take place within a kind of context. And it needs to be a humanized context. And, and to the degree it can be a depolarized um, context. And, I, and I've seen that. I've, I've heard from people who have very different worlds, very different views than I do. And they have, in some respects, opened up to me about some of their own doubts about MAGA world and about Donald Trump that I don't think that they would have done if they felt like this is just a debate. Interesting. And you know, as we think about political parties and, and division, but also the values underlying society and how that impacts the way we think politically, I was just reminded of some commentary that I've seen about 
ethnic minorities within America. Some have said are voting increasingly along the direction of values as opposed to along kind of other lines. Sometimes that has even met more ethnic minorities voting Republican. Is there any intersection there between some of the political philosophy we're talking about and the recognition of fundamental values that underlies society that, John, maybe you know, in 2003 when you wrote the article, you didn't recognize and, and now you are recognizing? Is there, is there any connection point there? I'm tempted to make Pete go first on, on that one because I'm likely to, to launch into a rant. Great. Well, do, let, let's have a, a short, a short, both feel free to have a short rant and then we'll take a break. Go ahead, well, John. Well, my short rant might set up what comes after the break, which, which is, I'm not sure I completely understood the question, but having marched up this mountain under the tutelage of, among others, Pete Weiner, to understanding and coming to respect Christianity as, as it can be with a Pete Weiner or, or a Tim Keller or a Michael Gerson, and coming to see it as something other than the cruel and hypocritical practice, which I thought it was for, for years as a young gay kid suffering at the hands of, of religious-based bigotry. The Christians were, of course, the worst in America. Having finally been, been uh, led to, a, I think, a deeper understanding of, of how beautiful Christianity can be and often is, I was then marched right back down the opposite side of the mountain by observing millions of Christians in America swear not just reluctant support, but enthusiastic loyalty to someone who, in my opinion, Pete will correct me, he's the Christian, but who, in my opinion, stands against everything that, that the Gospels of Jesus Christ represent. Someone who is a pagan in, in all respects that matters. Someone, someone who behaves cruelly and hypocritically and instead of being called out for it, is, is praised for it, is called God's wrecking ball. This has been, been deeply disillusioning, even, even horrifying, and, and not only to me. So, so that's my short ramp. I'm not sure if it's responsive to what you actually asked, but maybe it, it gestures in the right direction. Yeah, thank you. Pete, just an initial response to that, and then we'll take a break, and then we'll keep going. Yeah, I think I can rant better than John did on this question. Yeah, I, I, I think he's very right. Look, maybe I'll personalize it a little bit. Of all the things that have been disquieting and disorienting over the last eight years during the, during the Trump era, for me, the most personally painful thing is exactly what John described. And that's because I am a person of the Christian faith. And I do think that Donald Trump, as a political figure, is the antithesis in every important regard to what the Jesus ethic would be and what Christianity ought to 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 show to the to to the rest of the world. And I think there's been tremendous damage to the witness of Christ in this moment. I, I had a conversation with a very good friend of mine, somebody who was quite influential in my early journey of faith. And he he said this is a generational catastrophe. That younger Christians in particular are seeing this moral freak show unfold, and they see the hypocrisy that many of the same people who took a figurative two-by-four upside the head of Bill Clinton because of Monica Lewinsky and these personal scandals, when Donald Trump became first the nominee and then the president, nominee representative of the Republican Party, not only did they 
jettison those 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 same moral convictions the idea that morality and character was central to political leadership as john said over time they've taken a kind of psychic satisfaction in the cruelty and the crudity and the lawlessness and that is just a hard thing it's hard for me to make sense of as as a, as a follower of jesus let alone somebody like john who's on the outside so to a watching world they see this unfold and they've got to think, what, what is going on? Thank you. Let's pause there for our final break. If you're listening, go to premierunbelievable.com to sign up for the newsletter to get early bird access and a bonus episode of The Big Conversation with Ben Shapiro and Alex O'Connor. We will see you in just a moment. Welcome back to the final portion of our conversation between two fantastic writers and thinkers, Jonathan Rausch and Pete Weiner, one uh, an atheist, one a Christian, who together have forged a deep relationship around the deep questions of life. I'm Vince Vitale, and you're listening to Unbelievable, the show that gets Christians and non-Christians thinking together about the questions that matter most to all of us. John, I've already said one of the things I love about you is that your uh, writing constantly surprises me. I keep finding myself finishing the ends of your sentences in my head, but then I keep reading and they say something different than what I had assumed they, they would say. I'm going to read you one quote that was like that for me and then see if you can, can reflect on it. So you wrote, to me, when I look at the images coming back from the Webb Space Telescope, and ponder the mysteries and majesty of the universe, the astounding richness and diversity of biological life, and the achievements and limitations of human knowledge and culture. And then when I think about explaining any of this in terms of a big parent in the sky who creates everything magically, yet somehow demands propitiation from humans and looks after me and gives me life after death if I'm good, well, I'm frankly embarrassed rather than inspired. I feel sorry for a species that has to rely on such transparently infantile myths. Now, I found that a really interesting statement because you know, pretty often you hear people say, we look up to the starry st skies and we find this wonder in us of the divine. But actually, when you look at the starry skies and maybe the intricacy of the universe around us, your reaction is somewhat opposite. Can you explain that to us? I can't explain it. I can only say... It's how I am. If you, there's a lot of, if you're looking for reasons why I don't think there's such a thing as God, there's a lot, but the one you're mentioning is one of the three that are really important. One is epistemic, which we've discussed, which is that if you introduce supernaturalism into your worldview, then anything is possible at any time. And more importantly, there's no way to settle debates between me and Pete about scientific questions, because Pete can always say, well, a miracle did it, God did it, end of story. Set that aside. Second factor is just my psychology, the way I'm wired. That's really probably the most important, because it does appear that there are genetic factors that, that influence how we think about spiritual spirituality. But then the third is the one that you just alluded to, and that's aesthetic. Um, and to me, it's exactly what I just wrote. To me, it seems that, that the notion that some human-like creature wished this entire extraordinary universe into being for our sake uh, strikes me as the kind of thing a small child would use as a way to explain the universe, that it radically understates 
the sheer awesome scope and mystery and size of the thing that we've encountered. Um, but that's fundamentally is aesthetic. It's, I, I don't know that there's a deeper explanation than just to say, that's how I react when I encounter the God of the Bible, this creature, which is somehow completely human centric, um, yet is alleged to have built this vast universe inconceivably large. And Pete, in your correspondence with John, which you both generously shared with me, there's one point which John said, there's no principled reason why you believe Christian revelation, but not something else. Uh, you could switch to another religion and be on just as solid ground. You could believe in, in Santa. And so I wanted to put that to you and hear your reflections on that. Are you considering switching over to Santa or is there some principled reason why that's not going to happen? <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I've. I think I, I was thinking about switching to Santa when I was six, but I gave that up shortly. Shortly there thereafter. Yeah, I dis I disagree with that point with John, and the reason that I is that I do is because because Santa is not real, and I think Jesus is. Now I can't prove that. It's the nature of faith that you can't prove these things like a mathematical equation. And God Himself, for whatever reasons at least in, in, in my approach to things, has decided not to do it, right? It's not a logical proposition. It's probabilities and so forth. But what I've explained to, 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 to John is that my journey toward faith, which I alluded to earlier, was pretty careful, pretty methodical, and I tried not to have a vested interest in the outcome. I, I actually did a paper. I went to University of Washington in Seattle, which is not a Christian school. And I was in the class English 172. The teaching assistant was a guy named Jim Lyle. And I actually did a paper on the case for and against the resurrection because it was on my mind. And I had to get the approval to do the paper. And he, and, and he was nice enough to allow me to do it. He was not a person of faith. But I got a good grade on the paper because he felt like I approached it with, with some degree, I think, of, of, of integrity. So my view is that there is a case for Jesus, and I think that the, the definitive case of the resurrection is, is by Tom Wright, N.T. Wright, in the, the resurrection of the Son of God. And so I think that that limits the, the um, characters that I could follow, whether it's the Easter Bunny or Santa. I've chosen to follow Jesus because I think that there is a there's a a case to be made that Jesus is who he claimed to be. One other thing I just wanted to say, which is, as I said earlier, I, I accept John's argument of the potential danger and even the actual problems created by supernaturalism, the idea of miracles. And he had said at one point that it introduces chaos and randomness into the world. Um, but interestingly, he's also, as, as he's talked about, um, made the case for why religion is very important um, to society, and society is better with religion than and with with Christian faith than without it. So I think the chaos and the randomness may not be as great as he thinks. And even when he referred to 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 me and several other Christian friends that that we have, you know, we've been able to restrict the views of when the supernatural happens. Now that could be arbitrary. He could say. That, that I and Tim Keller and Francis Collins and others happen to believe there's no principled reason why we, why, why we couldn't 
invoke miracles for all sorts of things and suspend the laws of physics and the laws of nature. And I think that's logically true. But I think the way that it works out most of the time for most people that I've known is that those that supernatural element does not create the chaos and the randomness in their life. And then when you take in the other elements of what create me as a Christian, the Christian faith brings, uh, I think there, there's, there, there are a lot of advantages to it. And John wouldn't dispute that. And in fact, he's talked about... about... I, I wouldn't dispute it. I would simply add, Pete, that the case you just made implies the Christian faith properly understood. And the problem that I was ranting about earlier um, is that a lot of people don't understand the Christian faith that way. They understand it very different ways. Some of them understand it in ways that encourage the teaching of scientific illiteracy, for example. And some of them understand it in ways that teach cruelty and hypocrisy, um, and which don't offer much of a purchase for arguing them out of that kind of cruelty and hypocrisy. So the question becomes, what kind of Christianity? Okay, we're a majority Christian nation, at least for a while longer. But what does that mean? Does it mean the Christianity of, of Pete Weiner? Then if so, that's a very pro-social way of thinking about the world. That's the result of of hundreds of years of refinement and of the influence of people like C.S. Lewis and many others, and frankly, the, the fact that secular, secular ideas have done a world of good for Christians in understanding, for example, things like homosexuality. But that's a very different thing from the kind of Christianity which we're now seeing being seen expressed in, in delight at putting children in cages. For example, um, abusive language toward others, violation of the rule of law, and so forth. All of those things, too, these days seem to be justified by Christians. I don't know how they do it. You tell me. Um, but what this shows is that we all have a stake, not just, it's not a question of Christianity or religion versus secularism. It's a question of what kind of Christianity. And I think we secular people, even atheists, have a stake in this and have a certain entitlement to say to Christians, well, hang on a second. You, you owe us more fealty to what you claim is your own teaching than you're displaying. Yeah. Now, I'd say several things to that. I think that's really well articulated, John, <clears throat> and, I don't, and I don't dispute it. I'd say three things in, in response to it. One is uh, I think that John made a very compelling case against many of the followers of Christ, but not against the person of Jesus, obviously. And I struggle with that. And I struggle with it more now than I have in the past. The, the disconnect between people who claim to follow Jesus and their actions and their lives. And in fact, I'm going to, I have an essay that I'm going to be doing reflecting on this. Because as a Christian, I struggle with that. And I don't want to go down this rabbit hole too far. But presumably, the reality of the Holy Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit would animate Christian lives in a way that would be more evident than I think we often see. So, so that's point number one. I, I, the case against Christians is one that John is right to make, and I've made it as well. That is separate from the case against Jesus or even the faith properly understood. The second thing that I guess I would say just... I, I'm not sure point of personal privilege is the right term, but 
the number of people that I have known in my life who are followers of, of Jesus, whose lives are markedly more compassionate and loving and, and caring and filled with moral integrity is, is quite striking to me. And my life is better and my, my wife's life is better and our family is better because people have leaned in to us when we needed them too. And so I, I've known too many people whose lives have been transformed by faith that it's just always important for me because I am a critic of so much of what we see is, is, is unfolding. And the last thing I'll say is, and I think this is just where John and I are, are hardwired a little bit differently because of the notion of the, of the supernatural. I think f for me, as my faith progressed, I became both enchanted and, uh, and, and embraced um, the incarnation, which I consider to be a tremendously moving um, event in human history. Um, the idea of the creator of the universe stepping into history and not just being the author of our stories, but to being a protagonist within that story and the idea of God suffering on the cross. Now, I know for a lot of people that is either not a particular comfort or it's, it's actually an offense. The idea that God would, would take human form and be part of the human story is very much contrary to, to how, how they would see things. But all I can do is to testify into my own life and what it's meant to me. And so over time, I began to fall in love with this person, Jesus, and what he did for us. And, and, and that is undoubtedly an anchor. And that's not an intellectual anchor. I think that's a kind of emotional and, and, and aesthetic and transcendent um, anchor to my life. But of course, that is part of life, right? Part of life is intellectual and cognitive, and part of life is the aesthetic and the imagination and what C.S. Lewis referred to as, as, as joy. And depending on how what frequency you're on, those things can mean a lot to you or 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 not. And and it just happens for me as a follower of Jesus that that's a profoundly moving and important part of my life. Make this distinction, Pete, between the case against Christianity and the case against Jesus, and that reminded me in your correspondence with John. At one point, you said this uh, argument from C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity was significant for you. C.S. Lewis, someone that John also has affirmed as a significant thinker. But this idea that when we think about Jesus, maybe as opposed to just Christianity, that there are only so many options in terms of what we say about him. Do we call him Lord? Do we call him liar? Do we say that he was severely mentally ill? And perhaps there are not more options. People have debated this in different directions. But can, can you just summarize that article, that uh, argument, and that I'd be interested to hear any of John's reflections on it? Sure. Uh, this is an argument that C.S. Lewis made in, in Mere Christianity, where he said that Jesus was either Lord, a liar, lunatic. I think that was the alliteration that, 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 he, that he used. And that Lewis argued, and that's my own reading of the, of the Gospels, is that Jesus didn't really leave open the options. He was a great moral teacher, but he wasn't son of God, son of man, co-equal to God. That was, after all, the, the reason that the religious leaders killed him. The Roman authorities was a different argument because they viewed him as a threat to, to the power of the, of the state. 
But in my own readings of the gospel, there are just too many examples and of of Jesus making it clear that he was he, he was essentially co-equal with with God, what Christians refer to as the Trinity, even though that term doesn't doesn't appear in the in the Hebrew scriptures or or in the New Testament. And that struck me when I read it years ago as as plausible and 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 a reasonable take. And and so for me, the way I the needle tilted for me was obviously in the direction of 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 Lord. Now not everybody obviously sees it that way, and countless people, I think John among them, would say that Jesus, the example of Jesus, is a beautiful and and enlightened and and uh, morally uh, translucent and, and and extraordinary example, and he doesn't believe that Jesus was was Lord. But it seemed to me that that. That Lewis's case squared with how I read read the uh, the accounts in the, in the Gospels and 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 the epistles. Does that seem plausible to you, John? Or how do you think about that? No, it doesn't seem plausible. But on the other hand, it's not really my place in life to to dispute it. When I've when I got around in my twenties to reading a a good secular translation of the Gospels and the Acts, the one by Richmond Lattimore, I was stunned. I was stunned by the transcendent radicalism of the figure of Jesus, who is, I think, orthogonal to every philosopher who preceded him and orthogonal to every philosopher who followed him. This is a visionary of a type. It's not just what he said, but how he said it. And this is a transformative philosophy, some of which, um, some of which speaks to me. The notion of grace, for example, a, a fundamental innovation in ethics, and, and some of which strikes me as narcissistic and peculiar. The idea that the earth is going to end, so we might as well not care about our family. But but however you thought of it, this character of Jesus is an absolutely extraordinary figure, a liar lunatic lord, maybe all three, maybe none of the above. Unlike Pete, I think that we have a huge amount to learn from this figure, whether or not he was resurrected and was the son of God. To me, it's that's in some ways the least important thing about him, not the most important thing about him. You, you don't have to worship someone as a god in order to understand that it's that, that his or her ideas are profoundly transformative and important. And you certainly don't need to worship them to understand that, that humans still have an awful lot to learn from this philosophy and that many of those humans, including the ones who, who operate in his name on a day-to-day -day basis, are, are not doing as well at that as they should be. Just to, just to clarify, I, I don't mean to say that John or anyone else can't learn from Jesus. I mean, you read the Sermon on the Mount. Obviously, there are a lot of people who don't think he's he's Lord, that he's the Son of God, Son of Man, in the terms of of the Gospels, and they love the teachings in 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 the Sermon on the Mount and elsewhere, and it is a basis of 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 ethics. So it's certainly possible to 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 do it. My point was 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 slightly different, but I don't want to pretend that people can't learn from him because people have, and I think John has as 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 to. I will say one thing, John, which was it was it was in the context of braver angels, 
and you use the line that I'm a believer and an evangelist. So I'm going to ask Vince just to cut off the Braver Angels reference and just give me a clip. He's saying <laughs> I'm a believer and an evangelist, and we'll leave it at that. Well, we now have our marketing for the episode, Pete. Thanks for that recommendation. <laughs> Notorious <laughs> age atheist declares he's become an evangelist. Ex ex right. Exactly. I'm going to put it up on Twitter right away. That's right. Well, well, John, I mean, even if you haven't become an evangelist, I, I am really thankful, as someone who's a Christian, I'm really thankful for your story and, and partly just, as you said, growing up with hostility toward Christianity, but then meeting some people like Pete, like Tim Keller, like others. And, and you wrote here, you came to understand that Christianity can be transcendent, not just transactional, and that there are Christians who live scripture rather than merely quoting it. And I just thank you for that challenge. That has not always been the case. There's been a lot of um, hypocrisy and there's a lot of hypocrisy in, in each of us, but that is really something to strive after and aim for transcendent, not transactional Christians who live scripture rather than merely quoting it. And so we're getting towards the end of our time, but I thought, John, I'd love to give you an opportunity as someone who's been a sort of friendly critic of Christianity and someone who does see value in it. Sometimes when you're not part of a community, there are certain ways in which you can see it more clearly as well. Is there any advice, encouragement that you would give to those listening who are Christians in terms of how the witness of the Christian faith can can be can be better? Any steps that can be taken? I'm the worst person to ask, but I'm, I'm tempted to paraphrase Gandhi, who, when asked what he thought of Western civilization, supposedly replied, "It would be a good idea." And my request to Christians would be be more Christ-like. There's, if you look at what Christians have told me are sort of the, the, the three defining features of Christianity. I mean, there's, there can be a lot of disputes about this, but this seems to me to be pretty solid and others have told me it is. One is do not be afraid. Two is imitate Jesus. And three is forgive each other. Now, those happen to be the same values that are at the core of Madisonian-style liberal democracy. We have to make room for others. We can't come to politics from a place of fear. We have to realize that sometimes the other side will win and we lose, and that's okay. We have to forgive each other instead of deciding to, to, kill, the woman, to, kill, the, to kill them all and, and salt the earth. So I would hope to see more Christians bringing those precepts to their civic life. Pete said earlier that he knows personally a lot of Christians who have lived better lives, more moral lives, because they're Christians. And I would say I'm sure that's true in many cases, but some of those people are turning around and using that same Christianity as a bludgeon in their public life. And the people in their immediate world, they can be very kind and charitable and decent. But if you're talking about those goddamn Democrats, it's a different story. And, and we've got to remove that dysfunction. So that would be my request to, to Christians. Bear witness to your faith, not just in your personal life, but in your public life as well. Bear witness to your faith, not only in your personal life, but also in your public life. Excellent. Pete, 
Wayner, Jonathan, Roush, so thankful for you both, not only for your intellect, your insights, but also for your unlikely friendship, which has been a real encouragement to us all. Unbelievable listeners, let us know what you thought. Sign up for the newsletter at premierunbelievable.com. Always so grateful to you for joining us. Keep the conversation going this week with the people in your life. Until next time, I'm Vince Vitale for Unbelievable. Goodbye. Thank you for joining us on Unbelievable, the show that aims to get you thinking. We would love to hear your thoughts. Do get in touch. You can email us at unbelievable at premier.org.uk or leave a comment on our Twitter account at unbelievablefe or on the Premier Unbelievable Facebook page. And do check out our website, premierunbelievable.com. Registering there gives you access to all of our web content and our newsletter, through which you can gain access to hours of exclusive bonus content. That's premierunbelievable.com. And if you register or sign up for our newsletter there, you will automatically be entered into our competition to win a free book. If you enjoy listening to Unbelievable, please do consider rating and reviewing it on your podcast platform. Thank you for listening and see you next week.